What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio with Dan Neath. Hey, how's it going? Sat Neath, son. You alright, son? I'm sat son. Yeah. I was here used to being used to break. It's good. Yeah. We have our little back and forth, the small talk. How was the hiatus? It was good. Um, you know, personally boring, politically interesting. We've got a general election coming up. General election coming up. Did you know? Did you know we've got one coming up? Yeah, that's pretty depressing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, right, as what normally happens after we have our hiatus, we say that when we go and have a break, we're going to get loads of interesting guests on. But what's happened is we just it's forgot, we've forgot, forgotten to uh, to ask anyone. And so now we've got to record it with just us. And so we've got to sort of plumb the depths of our knowledge. I might uh, I might do it with a few voices, though. Just to yeah, just pretend you're a guest. Not even introduce them as people, just just randomly like put something on. New char- you need a new character. Yeah, yeah. A new character to develop. Right. So today we're going to actually talk about education. Do we need it? No. Um, <laughs> End of the podcast. But basically, I mean, the sort of, What's been happening in Wales over the last almost ten years is that the Welsh education system has basically been hammered um, because every three years this thing called PISA, which stands for the Program for International Student Assessment, publishes it publishes its rankings of the world's education system. It's December, wasn't it? It was bad Christmas time for Wales then, wasn't <laughs> um, it? Yeah. So the UK was first entered into the rankings like as a whole. So it was just it wasn't disaggregated for Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, England. It was just the UK. And when that was the case, the UK was scoring, as you'd expect, you know, pretty well. But when the PISA results were first published separately for Wales, England, Scotland, Northern Ireland in 2009, it emerged that Wales was doing pretty badly, despite embarking on significant reforms to the education system since whilst the evolution sort of came about in 1997. So Welsh children were seen to be lagging behind the rest of the UK in literacy, in numeracy, in science. Um, the three hours. <laughs> the three hours, yeah. Uh, and since 2009, there hasn't really been much improvement. Um, you know, Wales keeps scoring badly in all the core indicators. It did badly. Into, it was the worst out of the home, con- home count countries, rather, in 2012. And again, 2016. I don't, I don't read too good, do I? No. Um, and so they basically, there's successive low scores in the PISA rankings. They've created, essentially, I would say, like an existential crisis in Welsh education and within Wales more generally because it's... We're so used to in Wales being in the news for all the wrong reasons, you know, whether it's like rapid reaction, people going to the Gurnos in Merthyr, like, look at these feckless people, or, you know, Wales voting for Brexit or things like that. So we're always in the. Yeah. Well, the economy's failing. You know, we're used to this narrative of failure. We can only get so, attention by playing up, really. So, we? you know, poor education performance is just one more, <laughs> one more thing. Um, and it's rapidly sort of become an accepted part of the national common sense, like another thing we're not very good at. Yeah. Um, one more depressing pillar of failure in a country which is only ever really in the news for decline. One more nail in Wales' coffin. That last bit was one of the things I read out of my little introduction I wrote. Yeah. You can always tell yeah. when it's scripted. Um, <laughs> so you look away, don't you? So I think we've internalised this narrative of failure in education. I mean, I was looking through the BBC web, BBC Wales website for Stefan Pisa before this episode, and there was a headline before the 2012 results were published, and it says, Wales braces itself for PISA results. So not like, ooh, waiting excitedly, I wonder how we're going to do. Or the parents batting down the doors. But they? it was, yeah, bracing itself, like, you know, um, awaiting the inevitable bad news. And, you know, as predicted, you know, it, it was yeah. really, really bad. So what we're going to do in this episode is sort of go through the political economy of the education system in Wales, you know, how what, what it used to be like and how it's changed with evolution. Um, and so that's what's going to... Well, does that seem okay to you? Yeah, I got no objections. Okay. Yeah. 
and we're gonna, I think we're the success stories, aren't we? We've come out with the... We are, we're like, the boy's done good. <laughs> um, but what was interesting, right, um, I think the publishing of the PISA results has basically started, like, a new political tradition in Wales. So, like, every three years, you know, the Labour government is sort of embarrassed, like, ceremoniously in, in the eyes of the world because there's, like, finally objective statistical evidence they're not doing a good job. It's something that people have always said, you know, there's this lot of useless... But then our Welsh kids are doing really badly. Put uh, Kirsty Williams in a bit more awkward position. It did. 2013, criticising the Welsh Government. 2016, part of it. Part yeah. yeah, I mean, and she just became the Education Minister. And like a couple of months later, Pisa results were published. Do you reckon you kind of threw under the bus, isn't it? Like, yeah, you can come on board. Just under the yeah, wheels. Yeah, she probably forgot about it. Like, anything in the horizon I should be worried about? Nah. Education. Uh, nah, I'd be alright. So, what happens is, every whenever the Pisa results come out, there's all these envious comparisons with countries with like semi-militarised education systems like they did remember they did that thing they sent the Welsh kids to South Korea yeah so this is really good um, who wrote this it was BBC Wales again so they were like um, headline of this article was Welsh teenagers learn from uh, South Korean school swap uh, so basically saying about these three three young kids went to South Korea to learn about their education system and how different it was so they're saying that one obvious difference between the education system is the long hours uh, that the South Korean pupils put into it. And um, those, but as well as that, like the school would punish boys and girls who misbehave or come in late by making them mop their, um, their oh, holes. Punishment was in death. But in a little footnote to this article, which I found good, uh, well, not good, horrifying. So it's saying about how like the difficulties these children have, all the pressure put on them. And it says, as a little footnote, you know, we'll send, send our Welsh kids over, see what they can see, report back to us. South Korea has the highest suicide rate in the industrial world and is number one cause of death for those aged 10 to 13. 10. 10. Just hit double figures. You're like, not worth it. No, I've had enough, enough of math. So. But yeah, yeah but, but they do, it is, as you said, it's like a little footnote. Why can't Wales be more like, you know, insert, you know, sort of advanced country here? Yeah. And then like the, the, the sort of caveat is like, um, this country achieves this amazing result by putting children in a cage yeah. and whipping them with birch sticks yeah. until you know until they uh, you know someone's yelling in their face like get that times table out of the way and you know why can't you learn and it's almost the well-being of those kids is just a complete afterthought like, oh, well, oh no well they did well in the PISA results they did very well in the PISA results yeah downside is they're the class sizes are so small yeah. results so like <laughs> the, the kids, kids get more on one-on-one time yeah, yeah. they will top themselves yeah um, not a laughing matter no not at all um, um, so yeah there's a, they, they constantly do this they always say well you know, why can't Wales be more like these um, these other countries and Asian states there was another interesting thing which happens every you know again every three years after the results were published, there was a special debate in the Senate, and for the first time ever, I actually, it's probably the nerdiest thing I've ever done, where like, I actually watched like a live stream debate in the Senate, and it was it was pretty bleak. So and it was symptomatic, I think, of Welsh politics. You got, Labour was defending their record, obviously, and it was based on an internal report that they hadn't made public, so no fact check. <laughs> so they kept saying like, just trust us. Yeah, they were like, yeah. we've actually got this document document from like the OECD, which is basically saying that actually we're pretty good. And they was like, well, we've not read this because you haven't made it available. So that I'm is like, that is like a callback to me. Like, school, like I have done my homework, but I left in yeah, my house. But it, trust me, it's class. Yeah, it's awesome. It it's gonna blow you away. Yeah. So and then in response to all the attacks on their record, Labour kept claiming that like any attack on Welsh education was like an attack on Welsh teachers. As if to say, you know, are attacking 
you know, if you if you speak bad of the education system or the problems in the Welsh education system, then you're attacking the practitioners. Ironically, and we'll come on to this later, Welsh Labour have actually led the attacks on the Welsh education profession. But um, one of the weird things they st- I noticed they started doing, right, um, they kept, like, someone would say, uh, excuse me, Mr Speaker, can I just interject and say... Uh, that I really think that the Welsh teachers are doing a good job. And he would say, yeah, fine. And then another bloke would say exactly the same. And it was just really odd. Like, just like they weren't adding anything to the debate or anything like that. It was just like, I've got nothing to say. Can I just give you a nice compliment on... Can't be seen bad. I like, I like, your, little, I like your little beard. Yeah. I like your trousers, you know, things like that. It's just odd. Like reverse filibustering, mm. but just with good things. I, I guess they can't. Can you imagine that style? Like you did politics with or filibustering just America. You just compliment everyone, yeah. and it wasn't so much that you like kind of delayed the bill. It yeah. was just everyone was so complimented and felt so good about themselves Rever- by the end of it. A reverse roast. They were just like, yeah, that'd but be all, good, wouldn't it? But all I could think of, it, all I could think of when I heard these, you know, these people kept saying, "Oh, can I just say this?" So like, well, it just it was basically trying to derail the debate. And as I said. It was based on internal... Their defence of their record was based on internal report that they hadn't published. You know, the Tories kept saying about, you know, there's been a decline in standards and they were looking enviously towards England as they do with everything. You know, like, oh, there's more selective schooling. Michael Gove's really kicking off. He's, he's doing well. But, you know, but, you know, Toby Young, all his academies. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, Clyde actually made some, I thought, relevant points about the problems inherent in PISA. You know, how there was... It was based on short-termism and unrealistic targets, put pressure on teachers, things like that. They were, like, shut down by jeers from everyone. <laughs> shut up. Um, and then you kept doing turn up, so it was, like, Welsh politics in a nutshell. Um, <laughs> but what was interesting is that, you know, Kirsty Williams, as we said, has just, like, taken over the job. Um, and she she didn't look... I mean, bless her, she must... I mean, what I think... that A few months in post, and then, like, the worst ever PISA results come out. Yeah. Um, but what was significant was that... She stated, and, and well, again, I'll explain all this in a bit, but she stated that, you know, the PISA analysis must be respected because the PISA tests are respected around the world, and rightly so. And she basically said that the OECD recommendations will completely guide future Welsh government reforms. And she noted that the OECD have been invited by the Welsh government to monitor and guide Welsh education in the future. And this is all met with sage nods, you know, oh, yes, yes, you know. So it's a room of, like, it was... Room of true believers and, and room of mirrors as well, I guess, <laughs> isn't it? But what was really interesting, like, so Gareth Rees, who's a professor of education at Cardiff University, used to work in the same building as me, basically an absolute beast in political economy. So basically, Gareth has argued that, you know, a few years back, there used to be all these dissenting voices. You know, my, you know, my boss, Chris Taylor, Sally Power, really respected, you know, educators, uh, or rather, professors of education have said you know there are massive problems inherent in PISA and these are really respected voices but what that debate sort of showed is that dissenting voices have kind of been crowded out and there's PISA is like the only the only show in town now so should we talk about what you know how this all came to be yeah I'd, I'd, I'd like to like to find out you like <laughs> I would <laughs> at least at least pretend to be interested in it, yeah <laughs> so half-hearted yeah yeah well, sure, sure I sure would what what better thing to do on a bank holiday? Yeah, pretty much. Oh, happy May Day to everyone. Yeah. Do you know, weirdly, okay, I've seen a lot of left-wing publications celebrating May Day, and hardly any of them. I've not seen one that's actually linked it back to its anarchist roots. And I've not seen anyone say, let's go down the marine in Portugal and get our tops off and just drink Stromboli Day, which no. is the true meaning of May Day. That's how it started in yeah. uh, the Haymarket riot. Yes. Yeah. A load of lads just wanted to get pissed with their tops off, and then someone threw a bomb at the car. When I used to um, work in a hotel... 
I remember when you know, obviously when it's sunny, everyone takes a top off, mm. and this bloke comes in, like shirtless, obviously on the steroids. Like, um, I said, "Sorry, mate, can you can you put your top back on?" Yeah. And he was like, "Oh, fancy rulers here for this place." I'm like, "No, it's kind of just like society's <laughs> rule, you know." Like, uh, but it was seen as like impossibly posh, and you know, like the you know ridiculous fit, you know. To ask for me to ask this guy to take his top off. Yeah, Tesco. Put it, put it back on, rather. Oh, oh, that's not like a Freudian slip. Put it? your shirt on, buddy. Yeah, um, take it off and put it on. Anyway, nice charge. Nice here. diversion, right? So we're talking now about about pizza because you know pizza. I think like like GDP things we've explained and demystified in other episodes. We what, have. That's what we do in it. We break things down, so it's digestible for everyone. And these are things that people are maybe too scared to ask about because these are things that people throw around. And they're not explained. People go, ooh, pizza, yeah. pizza. Anyway, so pizza, right? If you look like, let, if you go on the website, I mean, it, it seems like the best. If thing you're not there already, if yeah. you haven't already been on the pizza website, um, so there's like a nice video, you know, and it's like pizza is about knowing whether 15 year olds are acquiring the social and emotional skills they will need to thrive, like knowing how to work and communicate with each other. So by ranking countries, pizza, you know, allegedly identifies good practices in education and aims. Not only to show how these systems are constructed, but to encourage countries to learn from each other's experience in building fairer, more exclusive school systems. So obviously that seems fantastic. That you know? sounds really good. What nice, nice guys, aren't they? Yeah. Um, but Pisa basically, you know, here's the pullback and reveal. Oh, no but, way. But wait. <laughs> there's, a, there's a man behind yeah. the curtain all along. Um, Pisa is far... Uh, so back to the scripted bit. Pisa is far, <laughs> Pisa is far from unproblematic. <laughs> Um, which is how I talk normally, as everyone. Yeah. Um, so, firstly, I mean there there are quite basic problems of sampling um, with PISA, which have been well documented. So, if you want to know more about this, we'll put the articles up online uh, on our Twitter and Facebook, and they're written by Chris Taylor and, and Gareth Rees. So, among this, among these concerns, basically PISA's use of imputed scores and the fact that PISA doesn't produce truly longitudinal data, so you don't can't really tell how people are doing over time. But above all, and the main problem with PISA, is that it simply doesn't measure like with like. So, you know, is it valid, for example, to compare an extremely deprived country of 3 million, you know, Wales, to... To a militaristic country <laughs> like South Korea. <laughs> or, you know, or an economic powerhouse of 53 million like England. Is it valid mm. to compare England and Wales? I mean, bear in mind now, it's not uncommon for schools in Wales to have over 50% of the children on their role classed as either deprived or possessing some form of special educational need, you know, over 50%, which is significant, obviously. So, you know, as I said, Gareth Reese and Chris Taylor, and I keep calling them Gareth and Chris, probably, um, but they've come up with an alternative model of measuring attainment, where Wales is compared to, like, a composite country. It's a self-reporting. <laughs> comprised of English counties, which face similar social problems and deprivation. So it's almost like they create a parallel little country to compare with Wales mm. based which has the same levels of social deprivation as like Wales. same economic yeah. kind of and yeah, so standing. when compared to those similar areas Wales actually did relatively well um, but you know the issues about of PISA it's not just sampling or method because for all the egalitarian rhetoric that I just read out of the website PISA is actually symptomatic of deep structural changes which have occurred within the world education system over the last few decades under the turn to neoliberalism so PISA's naming and shaming is basically public naming and shaming, like, you're good, you're crap. And the impact it's had on the Welsh education system 
is really profound um, and should be a cautionary tale, I think, for socialists, for educators everywhere. So what we're going to do is talk about how all this came about, the background of Thatcherism, neoliberalism. Anyway, so what is PISA and where did it come from? Nice rhetorical question to get us started off there. Yeah. Ooh, where did it come from? Right. Um, Let's find out. So be... <laughs> <laughs> just, I just want to say, by the way, I'm loving your levels of enthusiasm. They're just higher than normal things. Yeah, um, yeah. In the 1970s, following the breakdown of like you know, the welfare state regimes across the West, um, the basis of the world economy shifted. So you know, economies in sort of the Western world basically began to move away from dependency on manufacturing and natural resources, you know, raw materials, and those industries increasingly moved to the developing or the third world. You know, so mm. didn't that's what happened with the industrialization. Wales don't need coal in the UK anymore because you can get it from. Eastern you can get Europe it cheaper, can't you? And place elsewhere. So instead... Shop economy, around. <laughs> yeah, shop around for our steel and our coal, things like that. But, you know, that's literally what happened. So the raw materials and every, the, there's a profound shift in the world economy in the 70s where the things that the Western world used to be based on, raw materials and manufacturing, moved overseas, basically, because yeah, it was like, cheaper. Yeah, where labour laws are a lot lax yeah. and you get children digging in the mud for, you know... With their little hands. Yeah. They're I more think dexterous. They are. They're get much in, better. Get more diamonds out of the... Um, but anyway, so instead of, you know, re- what replaced all that? So the new paradigm was that instead of, you know, econ- the economy wasn't going to be based on raw materials and manufacturing anymore. Instead, economic growth and success was going to be based on knowledge, which became transformed into commodity. So one of the theories that informed this was basically this thing called human capital theory. So basically, the more intelligent and skilled your population the better your economy is, basically. Um, so knowledge is now an, a commodity. It's something that, you know, is quantifiable and is a thing in itself. So whereas it used to be, like, you know, a whale has got coal. Now it's like, oh, we've got, like, all these scientists and things like that. That's that, that's the ideal. Yeah. Anyway. And so intelligence and skills of the population soon became the most important natural resource, you know. So instead of making things, you know, the new priorities are about, you know, information technology, you know, science and innovation, research and development, and in particular, higher education, because higher education is very important in this, because universities are kind of like the the core. This, you know, if if the not if the economy is based on knowledge, then universities are where it all starts from, all emanates from, and that's why you've got a proliferation of like business startups and why businesses are, you know, business schools are cropping up all over university campuses, and there's all these spin-off companies mm. getting people scientists to patent things and, and things yeah, like that so if you're wondering why university campuses have changed it's because of, of we just that. that new development by outside swans haven't we yeah uh, yeah so technium and things like that these are the things that are going to be of transfer so the turn to the knowledge economy has transformed higher education away from you know pointless subjects like art and history <laughs> and sociology who needs those yeah. you know towards like harder subjects you know the hard sciences hard sciences business things like that that you know those are what that's what drives the economy and not yeah so you uh, fairly like you put value on it yeah, so basically. you uh, yeah. <laughs> you so, have an economy but no culture so um, unless you can quantify it yeah um, pretty much so the globalised economy basically requires the removal of as many barriers between different countries as possible um, so people basically need to be able to communicate to people in other countries in order to trade so this has led to a drive for the standardisation of pretty much everything that can be measured and this need for standardised me- standardized measures extends to learning and knowledge so the world education system needs to be borderless you know you know, I said about 
you know, universities being the core of this knowledge economy. People need to be able to move between higher education establishments with ease. They need standardised exam results that, you know, they can measure because otherwise someone could say, listen, I've got this awesome degree in these yeah. results from this country, you know, trust from this me. Website. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you need to be able to check these things, basically. Yeah, um, Scotland's got a different, um, different, like, A-level. Yeah, the highest. But people need to be able, people basically need to be international comparable. Uh, things need to be comparable. Um, I should have said earlier, this change to the knowledge economy was also driven by the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is where PISA comes from. Um, and so, where PISA comes in is this need to standardise education systems and have this quantifiable, you know, how to how do we rank world education systems? Um, so PISA is the brainchild of the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, which you can check on Wikipedia if you want. And basically, the OECD is a product of the Cold War, which basically acts like a managing board, like an advisory board for world capitalism. So it like advises countries on best practice on tax, fiscal policies, things like that. Um, and obviously what it does, it, it promotes like a neoliberal form of economic development, like you reintroducing the, you know, removing the state from things, you know, it, ensuring like private actors are involved in things like that. So it's kind of a US idea of how an economy should be run. Yeah. Um, and basically what happened is education increasingly became viewed as an excellent surrogate way of measuring the competitiveness of a nation's economy. So, as this happened, so alongside this, the OECD basically developed an educational component. You know, and PISA is the central pillar of that. Um, you should also say as well that PISA is lucrative for the OECD, and that you know it spawned this massive cottage industry of consultants and companies and advisors that sort of sell PISA solutions. Yeah, you know, this is how you don't want marketing it, might have they? Very well. PISA DVDs. Yeah. yeah fitness. Yeah. <laughs> A range of pizza food. It comes. Uh, all right. So why is all this relevant? Always with the rhetorical. This is my new thing. Yeah. To ask myself a rhetorical question and answer it. Why do I do that? <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah, uh, all right. So pizza and its league tables. They're basically symptomatic of the huge changes to education right across the world that are being brought about by this change to quote unquote you know the knowledge economy. Um, and so Thatcher. I was wondering why I said that earlier, but because <laughs> I've written it here. Yeah. Um, right, so Thatcher, Maggie Thatcher basically said back in the 80s that neoliberal economics is not the end in itself, but simply a method of changing the heart and soul of society, of changing its values. And so nowhere is this more evident, really, than in the field of education. So neoliberalism has gradually altered the nature and purpose of education in society. Um, Everything gets open to a market, you know. Yeah. Like you said, just saying that its only value is how much money you can make out of it. So basically, how and why education matters to society has basically fundamentally changed. You know, so education is now something which grows the economy. You know, and this is why you have, for example, bosses' organisations like the Confederation of British Industry, the CBI, um, routinely weighing in the best way to improve education because education is linked to the economy, basically. So qualifications, for example, are no longer a private good. It's not like, oh, that'll be good for me to learn and develop. Um, oh no, so rather, they're no longer a pu- big slip. They're no longer a public good, mm. but they are a private good. So it's not like I need to, you know, education for the good of society. It's like I need to get a master's, a PhD for me, basically. Um, it's basically a form of capital. 
Mm. Like the more knowledge you have, like I need more knowledge. <laughs> I, need, I need to get all more qualifications so I can thrive in the knowledge economy. Ironically, of course, if you like me, you get your PhD and you end up working in a bar anyway. So yeah. um, that's one of the problems. The problem that's the problem right there. The knowledge economy is that knowledge economy is largely rhetorical. In places like Wales and the developing world, the economy is not based on high tech industry or knowledge at all yet. Mm. So people like me, it's a personal rant get sort of lied to, like, hey, get a master's, get a PhD, and you'll be able to get a job. I, I did find that with school, though, as soon as, like, you know, as the build-up to your GCSEs, then, right, AL is now, right, yeah. time for uni, and if you didn't want to apply to uni, you was just like, oh, do you want to just play in another room? <laughs> like, while everyone, like, you know, you have you have um, lessons dedicated to UCAS and how to fill it out. Yeah. Well, yeah, what did you do in it? That was going on. Soft play. Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, soft play, advanced soft play. <laughs> It was yeah. soft play but with edges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With rectangles. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Nailed it as well. Man. Good lad. Thanks. You're really good at that, man. Yeah. Um, so basically... I like people to tell me it though. I don't <laughs> like to announce it. Education is no longer public good. You know, so think back to, you know, I don't know, this golden age of like um, Wales in like the 1920s and you know, you've got miners' welfare halls with a slogan on the top of them, knowledge is power. Hmm. And it was this idea that we're accruing knowledge to transform society to better our community, not so I can get a good job and just leave this place. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's what yeah. it is now. So basically, education is no longer public good in its own right. So if it doesn't benefit the economy, narrowly defined, it's basically seen as pointless. What's the point in art? What's the point in sociology? Mm. Um, and it's not about cultural development. It's not about personal fulfillment or like helping the community. It's not about civic participation. I mean, that's, I mean, if you think about it now, that seemed, those ideas seem ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's just like it's a sad term it's, it's quite obvious thing. now that education is just for benefiting yourself uh, or benefiting the economy um, so just as the function of education has changed the actual content of school education has changed as well so you know what is taught has changed and how it's taught has changed so I've just been going on about subjects which add no tangible value to the economy the arts music stuff like that have become marginalised at the expense of hard science sciences business because society needs engineers well web developers things like that um but what's what's also happens that teaching and education has increasingly become about data because everything has become quantifiable so you know like so basically um children have to be you know tested more in order to measure their progress more efficiently you know schools and teachers naturally have to be measured in order to be accountable, to ensure they're delivering a good service. Yeah, so you get like a culture then of league tables, don't you? So, um, and then so that would lead to, as you were saying before, it being open to a market, you have schools competing against each yeah. other. Yeah, so basically what happened is, I mean, this started under Maggie Thatcher, um, and there's a, there a number of sort of advisors that she had. And interestingly, a lot of it came from sort of these think tanks, like guys like Stuart Sexton, I think. I think I'm not, hopefully I'm not sneering someone, but you know, you basically got the gradu- under the thatch under Thatcher in the you know, in the eighties. You gradually got these policies in education, like the Education Act, nineteen eighty eight, and what you see is that like a modernization of teaching. Teaching, you know, education becomes more about parental choice rather yeah. than what about teachers. For Again, example. open to a market, isn't it? It's yeah. like you're seen as you're like, oh, what should I drink? What car should I drive? Where yeah. should I send my child? Absolutely, and it become you see a lack of confidence in England anyway in state schools to support the academically able so you've got a rise in 
you know, pr- pr- you know private school system, um, which is no surprise really when you consider the background of those that have run England for the last, you know, five hundred years or yeah. like the same school. But you've got you know the, the Illuminati, right? <laughs> yeah. You've got the increasing under thatch. You've got like the increasing um, deprofessionalization of the teaching profession. You've got increased control of the curriculum. You've got reduced, you know, the teaching unions greatly reduced in power. And you've got more like privatization, as you've said, basically. And so, yeah, so basically there's, there's a, I mean, there's a, a guy who wrote this article and it's called, um, well, book even, a guy called Taubman. It's about teaching by numbers and it's about this sort of culture. And it's about, you know, schools are basically pressured to, and they, there's this word I always hear is like accountability. Mm-hmm. Whenever you hear accountability in business or in a policy document, that means shitloads of pressure on someone. That's what yeah. that means. Accountability is a byproduct for you are going to be measured in this. And if you don't do it, you're going to get fired. Basically, that's what accountability means. So increased accountability sort of started to creep into the British education system. So as you said, you've got schools, you know, there's league tables basically, which are introduced under conservatives in England as part of this new like paradigm shift because, you know, we need to know which schools are doing well, things like that. Um, but also if you think about the nature of education itself and this is where me and you are probably you know we're different from the majority in that we're self-taught but, but yeah I, <laughs> but no but but as an anarchist like i criticize the comprehensive system from the left mm-hmm. and as we talk about in a minute there's a massive huge like zealous belief in the comprehensive education in in wales i personally don't share it but i don't i, I you know I'm, that's not to say i'm you know michael gove academies like yeah, private schools yeah. it's just there are certain parts about the comprehensive system which I think need to be tweaked or abolished. Um, but basically, you know, if you think about how league tables impact on teachers, for example, and schools, it impacts on children as well. So children become desperate to get qualifications, and they're also like basically implicitly encouraged to compete with one another. You know, it's not you know solidarity isn't encouraged, is it? You know, you yeah. you know you're taught like you know, don't hang around with those you know the you know, the pretty kid, kid, uh, green stone. Yeah, kids are put into sets and what happens you end up not hanging around with kids in the lower set because it's almost like oh they're going to they're going to bring you down things like that yeah. the fact they might be like your best mate in- is, interestingly, a, is a material um, so throughout the years a few like, experimental or, or anarchist um, type run schools were set up and the idea was everyone works together there's no individual work so they found with some of the kids who were doing sums is that before they do the group work before school started, uh, the kids would individually do the sums themselves, see where they all got stuck, and work it out between each other. So it becomes like you're saying again, like the almost the opposite of like this neoliberal economic model where everyone competes to see who's the best. Well, when you were in school, did you notice it? I mean, it, I can think now, and it brings back, you know, I mean, I remember being always at the bottom of class in maths, yeah, yeah. and it was the worst feeling ever, you know. And it's, it's, you internalize it, don't you? Yeah, and I remember, I remember, I remember, I still remember asking my mate, like, um, kill me no no but just saying like you know I mean, I mean I'm just I, I can't do this like equation well most of the other subjects I couldn't do French in particular yeah but I remember even one of my best mates at the time being like stop asking questions like you know mm. like because he was like well you're gonna get me in trouble or you're, yeah, you're yeah. gonna bring my grades down and things like that and I'm sure to extend maybe I did it in other classes you know I, I didn't but the point is solidarity isn't encouraged I mean my best you know my mates weren't always academically able mm. um, but gradually what happens I think this is speaking personally, you gradually, the school drives a wedge between you and your, and some of your friends, 
in terms of you you just see them less and less because you get put into sets and you start hanging out with the kids that are in certain sets and things like that and it's almost discouraged by the teachers like why are you hanging around with him for mm. like he's he's not or sometimes the parents as well isn't yeah. it? wrong side of the tracks you know well yeah, my parents would, would do that but I can see it does happen obviously yeah um, but you know so and, and what happens as well is that teachers begin to teach to the test yeah because if you've got certain thresholds to hit teachers aren't going to go well you know We've got no time to do in-depth understanding yeah. and love of this subject. Just, just memorise yeah. these we need for to, Thursday. We need to get this percentage of kids to get a C grade. This so let's just do that. Do you remember much about what you learned at school? Because I was thinking, like, I, you know... Just English and history. Yeah. No, Nazi Germany, because I got taught Nazi Germany from year 7 to year 13. Did you? So only, probably know more about the Nazis and the Hitler Youth did. Yeah. Um, I just remember Glaciers from Geography. Do you? Yeah, and... Unfortunately, the one year that Clases didn't turn up at the tests at the end. What the? That yeah, yeah, the yeah. only thing you'd memorised. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, this this is not just for geography; this is across the board. Interest. Glaciers. No glaciers in maths. No, I know. No glaciers in history. Sits you right up the name. No. Yeah. Personal anecdote. Um, I'm so terrible at maths. Name and knows me. I'm appalling at it. I got my GCSE. Like we did our GCSE maths, and I was like, I came out. I was like, do you know what? Like I think I've done all right in that. Yeah. Um, and everyone's like, no, you haven't. Like, just relax. You you would have failed. Um, and then we were in Italy as a family for my GCSE results. And we had to ring up, and I rung up my neck like one of the my neighbours who'd gone to school and got my results. And I got a really a good grade in maths. Oh, congrats! So yeah, thanks, man. I just thought I'd sort of promote myself and praise myself on a on a yeah. sour show. So you know, <laughs> yeah, we do what we want. Um, but and then I remember I hung up. I was like, thank you very much. Hung the phone up. Turned to my old man. And my mum was like. Oh, I got this and this, and they were like, "Ring back and check." Oh, <laughs> right. So, so another personal anecdote was I wasn't that good at like you know some of the standardized tests and things. And my dad, I was like maybe fourteen or fifteen. My dad was like, uh, "Do you maybe want to become a plumber?" I was like, "Cheers, that's uh, filled me with confidence." Good job, though. It is. I wish I did. <laughs> Ironically, <laughs> I wish I you know. Yeah, but at the time, as you said, in school, that's. In already faded from view I think if you're a certain like because what happens in the UK I mean this is we're going back we're off topic but who cares this, this is yeah. so you know within sort of traditional education systems and this is why the anarchist view of education is superior they divide mental work you know air quotes mm, yeah. and manual work like quote unquote so that's why certain children are encouraged you know, don't do DT or sh- shop class or you know like home economics or things like that that's not for you you're going to do more academic subjects sciences humanities, things like that, and other certain kids are... And what happens is that you're missing out on a massive part of your education because it mm. means you become a, a man-child like me in your 30s who can't change a tyre or a light bulb or things mm. like that. Um, and what the anarchists say is that you need this integral integral education where everyone does everything. So, you know, there's no, there's no artificial divide between the physical, you know, actually doing, like, labour and fixing things. Yeah. Um, so everyone has to chip in and do everything, basically. But we'll, we'll, do, we'll do another episode on anarchism. We should, actually. Yeah, we plan to. Maybe um, this season. It's a lot of reading, though. I picked up... Um, oh, I can't remember what it's called now, but it's a history of anarchism. And it's about 400 pages yeah. long. It's just like, oh... Well, it's good, because we've, we've what we've done, we've suckered people in now with other topics, and now it's like like um, like a religious zealot. It's like, hey, yeah. now, now I've got your attention. Let me speak to you about our Lord. Uh, you know, it's now, like, now you've accepted that chocolate bar. Have, yeah, have you ever th- discussed... The one true faith, you know, anarchism. So it's like we've we've hopefully got people now where we can sort of manipulate them and sort of gradually. 
overthrow the state inculcate anarchist values into people yeah um, anyway some of you may already have anarchist values in you and as as you say many times before a big anarchist project that eventually got taken on by the government was Myron's uh, NHS yeah absolutely right where were we right so education has basically become a key battleground in the fight against neoliberalism we'll be tweeting articles from like Jacobin things like that accessible articles about how edu- why education matters so in the UK the knowledge economy was embraced by Tony Blair and New Labour, who basically became obsessed with education and using education as a driver of an economic growth. So the British economy moved towards services, innovation, like culture and things like that. So the turn to the knowledge economy under Blair, it basically continued the the neoliberal reforms of Thatcher, basically. Um, so league tables were attained by Blair. You know, there's an increasing penetration of private... <laughs> Said penetration. Um, increasing penetration of private providers in education in England through the private finance initiative, something that was naturally wrapped has been wrapped up by Michael Gove. So basically, under New Labour, there was quite like a confrontational tone with teachers, basically saying that an education became about delivering better standards for consumers of public services, you know, like parents and kids, um, and basically producers like teachers and doctors basically buckled in for a hard ride to deliver these standards. So you got this accountability mantra coming in again um, so parental choice even if they set parents against teachers became the new mantra teachers became viewed as a vested interest who selfishly resented the request that they be made more accountable for their performance so basically like teachers they were like oh these lazy teachers they've been coasting for ages it was like this let's take on the teachers um, and there was one of the other important things that under new labour is that some of the special advisors that David Blunkett employed basically said that it doesn't matter about how bad the situation is out of school schools can compensate for the ills of society anyway so education is where we can really see the continuities between new labor and education basically if you look at blunt david blunkett's school reform he led a, an attack on like progressive teaching he insisted on a return to like traditional whole class teaching and a focus on like the three r's things like that he took a very as i said a confrontational term with teachers with teachers unions so that's what's happening in England. Mm. But Wales was supposed to be different, right? So in 1997, as we all know, Wales voted narrowly for devolution, and that, in a way, was a reaction to Thatcherite neoliberalism. So, you know, we were we were basically told that devolution would shelter us from Westminster, weren't we? Yeah. Um, potentially allow us to create <laughs> this... Some of the... Well, some, some of the, the shrapnel still got through, though. Yeah, but some of the rhetoric around the time was basically saying that devolution will allow us to create this, like, social democratic little state, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, still waiting. Yeah, still waiting. Um, but basically, you know, even though devolution was delivered by New Labour and Blair, um, you know, right from the beginning of devolution, Welsh Labour rhetorically began to distance itself from New Labour's embrace of neoliberalism. You know, so, that, you know, we all know about Clear Red Water, Roger Morgan's speech. So basically what that speech did was try to distance Welsh Labour from New Labour who were positioned as this, like, right-wing English sort of... Uh, project and Welsh Labour were seen as heirs for social democratic tradition. So basically what the Welsh government did, you know, again, rhetorically, they rejected a lot of the market-oriented policies favoured by the Blair government. So it's worth quoting what Rodri Morgan um, said, like... So, yeah, Rodri Morgan said, our commitment... Can you do it in Rodri Morgan's accent? Oh, does he sound? I, Rodri Morgan! No, I can't do it. <laughs> our commitment to... A... Is that no, it? he's not North Wales. He's got this weird... Right. I can't do it. Just do it normal voice. 
Our commitment to <laughs> our commitment to equality leads directly to a model of the relationship between the government and the individual, which uh, regards that individual as a citizen rather than a consumer. Approaches which prioritize choice over equality to outcome rest, in the end, upon a market approach to public services, in which individual economic actors pursue their own best interest with little regard for the wider um, considerations. Yeah, so basically what Roderick Morgan and the Welsh Labour government were saying at the time was like, we're going to be very, very different to new new Labour, you know, neoliberal new Labour. So you know, despite possessing very limited powers, you know, the Welsh government started to embark on some of these social democratic uh, things, didn't it? So it rejected PFI in hospitals. Yeah, um, that's that's really opening up schools to market, isn't it? You <laughs> literally you know, subcontract them out uh, so yeah, it, but so they rejected that, didn't they? They rejected PFI in hospitals and schools. They initiated progressive policies like free prescriptions, um, free or concessionary public transport for the elderly. Banned smoking on the playground. Yeah, banned ban smoking, <laughs> including the playground, yeah. <laughs> and you um, weren't allowed to strangle your, uh, your students with carrier bags. Yeah. Like, or oh, you'd face a 5p charge. <laughs> and they started charging with carrier bags to help yeah. the environment. So those are some of the other things. But, but the most obvious field it attempted to diverge from England and to ch- sort of chart its own course was in education, right? So basically, prior to, ed- prior to devolution... There were a lot of parallels between the education system in Wales. Um, there were a lot. There's a lot of similarities between the Welsh education system and the English education system. Although this has been overstated. So again, Gareth Rees has basically said that the similar, you know, there were similarities, but one of the main differences is that Wales was obsessed with comprehensive, mm. um, uh, the comprehensive system, like culturally, um, whereas England sort of wasn't basically. So there's never been this like issue of choice in Welsh education system. But anyway, devolution gave Welsh ministers responsibility for pretty much every element of education aside from teachers pay and they instantly began to make the most of these new powers so jane davidson was the welsh the minister for education lifelong learning in the year 2000 and she also pursued 2007 and she basically began to embark on a journey where education was sort of linked to social justice so um basically what happened like the welsh government established a children's commissioner it said it was going to put children and education at the heart of welsh society and 2001 the Welsh government abolished school league tables. Nice. Um, nice. Uh, and in 2004, the Welsh government abolished SATs. Um, nice. Do I remember? Do I think I did my SATs. I must have done. Were you in school in 2004? Yeah. How old was I then? Old my now? 29. Um, 12 years ago. I can't 17. We're the li- living personification of the failures of the Welsh education system. Somewhere Pretty much, yeah. Um, but anyway, so they did away with SATs. And this was controversial at the time. So the English... Uh, Blair special advisors like um, David Reynolds, Rep in Arms, saying this is going against all the neoliberal orthodoxy. It's yeah. basically saying that, you know, the PISA is telling you to do one thing. PISA is telling you to bring in league tables to have more accountability, more testing, and you're doing less. Um, so basically, and then in terms of another example, in 2005, the Welsh government introduced school councils. They tried to ensure that students had an active voice in the run of their school. Like a commune, I can't remember that. Happen- I mean, that happened. Um, oh, actually, I graduated by then. That's why. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's um, isn't it? Because you've kind of got this attacking like, all these things. Yeah, like, this window of like, you know, after you finish school till now, and you feel like everything's like it's just happened. It's like, no, like a decade's gone. <laughs> um, yeah. So on top of that, the Welsh government um, built in the explicit commitment to helping most deprived students, what they call closing the gap, and then so they pursued initiatives such as Fly and Start, which is basically free education for. Two to three-year-olds in community yeah. first. 
for young pilots yeah. <laughs> in needed community first areas. They started a pupil deprivation grant, although you know that was launched in 2012, but it was sort of developed a lot earlier, which allocates more money to schools to help the most deprived students. And top of these reforms, you know, Davidson, uh, Jane Davidson was a teacher herself, that's probably important. She basically adopted a far more conciliatory tone with teachers and teachers' unions than David Blunkett. So she was like, hey, can't we all just get along? Like, We'll listen to what you guys want. Mm. Whereas in England, they were like, let's take on the teachers. Yeah. Um, and elements of the curriculum reform. So, you know, you've got, they drew on progressive elements from across, experiments from across the world, like um, Emilia, Reggio Emilia, which is like a progressive curriculum in, it, in Italy. So the Welsh government introduced um, the foundation phase for children aged three to seven, which is a play-based curriculum which replaced the more formal Key Stage 1 phase. The Welsh Baccalaureate qualification for 14 to 19 year olds was introduced. That was piloted in 2003, rolled out in 2007. And the Welsh Bac was intended to offer more broader, less purely academic curriculum to students. You know, we just said about the anarchist, you know, the integral education. And the Welsh Bac also encouraged things like community service, development of soft skills, like Mm. confidence, things like that. So it's not just purely sort of academic focused. And on top of this, of course, the Welsh Government also enshrined and promoted Welsh language education in Wales, including the establishment of a lot of Welsh medium schools across Anglophone areas of South Wales. Do you remember that many Welsh um, medium schools being about when you were in school? No, I don't. But I mean, there were, you know, Esquivel, Scare, near me, and then Llanharry. But now, obviously, there's been. But obviously, there's there's a lot more now, and that's all. That's all since devolution. Yeah. So basically, Gareth Rees, I keep calling him Gareth, but you know, basically, Gareth has basically claimed that. This distinct approach to education was basically underpinned by deep-seated social democratic values. Um, I mean, there are a lot. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with all of that. Um, I think it's probably about the minimum you should expect from a government that claims to be social democratic. You know, child-centered, you yeah. know, non-market-oriented, you know, relatively teacher-friendly. So, the base, <laughs> so, so, so basically, after it's you know, more like they're ticking boxes, really, <laughs> rather than yeah. But you know what I mean. So basically, after so. Do you, after devolution, they started to try this sort of non-PISA approach, this like you know the social democratic approach, abolishing league tables, abolishing SATs, being nice to the teachers basically. But anyway, I'm going to talk about Leighton Andrews, our friend Leighton Andrews, big friend of the show. What's up, yeah. Um, if, if you can come on at any time, Leighton. So you know, PISA changed all this, right? So in 2006, something called the Doherty Review, um, ironically also called for the scrapping of SATs. Um, said that Wales should probably be entered into PISA mm-hmm. so we can have some way of measuring our, how we're doing. So Jane Davidson, ironically, so she was the one that did all these progressive things, she took Wales into PISA. Um, she wouldn't be around for the results. Yeah. Uh, they were Do you probably, think she knew? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go. Um, you take over. So Jane had, took over, another Jane. So the results were published in 2007. Um, so the results weren't brilliant, but you know, they weren't significantly different from the other home nations, right? Um so Jane Hutt is the incoming education minister, and she basically says that she kind of is a bit, she, well, she's quite balanced. Like, so they get the Welsh, Wales isn't doing particularly well. She basically says that her priority was to secure better outcomes for learners, not just to score highly in the PISA rankings. Um, although she did acknowledge that she recognised the importance of PISA as a yardstick. So you can sort of see... Big ch- children with. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, uh, like South Korea. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a change was underway. So... Um, it's probably worth talking about politics just for a sec. Oh, no. Yeah. Politics. Um, but basically, in the 2007, 2007 Assembly elections, Labour failed to get a majority, and they were forced into a coalition with Plaid, 
mm. which we know is the One Wales government. Um, and obviously Plaid, I mean, well, people will debate this, but Plaid are essentially further to the left than many in Labour. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but in I think quite shrewdly, because he probably knew that this, they weren't going to win a majority, Rodri Morgan sort of packed his cabinet with Plaid-friendly people like Carwin Jones, Edwina Hart, Jane Davidson, things like that. And he, he sort of froze out anti-nationalist Blairites like Clayton Andrews and Hugh Lewis, who would have been quite you know harder to manage. Those are the people that would have been a nightmare to manage in a coalition with Plaid. Um, but Hutt's period, Jane, so that's significant, the One Wales Coalition. So Jane Hutt's period in office from 2007-2009 was relatively uneventful. Um, you know, with a minister stating, which I think is quite unusual for a Welsh politician, that she wanted to give the politician the, the policies of Jane Davidson time to bed in. She yeah. didn't just tear up everything up just for the sake of it, which is what happens normally in Wales. Anyway, but what Hutt's tenure was basically the calm before the storm. So dun dun dun, you know, tenure more like two year. <laughs> uh, um, got in there. Pretty good, man. Thanks. That's really good. Um, <laughs> so in late two thousand nine. Jane Hutt was replaced by Leighton Andrews. So Leighton Andrews um, served from 2009 to 2013, and he's in many ways a protagonist here of this story. Um, <laughs> so he was rewarded for his role as campaign manager by the new Welsh Labour leader, Carwin Jones. So thanks very much for getting me elected. He was made education uh, uh, secretary. So a year after coming into office, the next round of PISA results were published, and Wales had done very, very badly. And these, revel- these results would have a profound impact on you know, Leighton Andrews' period as Education Minister and subsequently on the direction of Welsh education as a whole. So in stark contrast with Jane Hutt, who was like, oh, okay, well, that's pretty bad, but you know, yeah. so what? <laughs> Leighton Andrews basically went absolutely mental and he just declared, you know, they got a big list of quotes I printed out. He said the results were a wake-up call to an education system in Wales that had become complacent, has become complacent rather, falling short of being consistently good and not delivering outcomes our learners deserve. So PISA... <laughs> basically induced a sense of urgency, you know, panic, like when the, the peanut factory and the Simpsons were the elephants. Yeah, I told um, you, you're laughing me. So basically, you know, rather than remain calm and consider, you know, the low baseline that Wales was starting from, the fact we're sort of deindustrialised nation, all these social problems, or focus on the relatively high levels of school well-being, the fact that kids in Wales actually seem to quite enjoy school, even if they couldn't read or write. Yeah, um, perhaps that's why they enjoy it. <laughs> so Leighton Andrews basically became obsessed with climbing up the Pisa League tables. And what he did, he set a target of moving Wales inside the top 20 nations for reading by 2015. So that's like, I think it's probably one of those things, as soon as he said it, it was like... Yeah, you know, it's just someone's like, I think I think I'm going to start getting in shape this year. I'm hoping in two months to do a triathlon. Yeah, basically, yeah. yeah, That's that's exactly kind of... um, So basically, he got to work with like a fanatical sense of purpose, basically. So... He initiated a wide he a safe face, for you, didn't he? <laughs> initiated a wide ranging set of reforms. You know, so he basically ripped up what Jane Davidson had done. So there's a he came up with a twenty point plan, nice and simple, twenty points. Yeah. So this was tattooed in the man's back. So <laughs> yeah, if you've seen him, he's absolutely ripped. Yeah. And he's got all these like prison tattoos, but they're actually just the, his education reforms. Yeah. So like Ed Miliband's got the headstone on him, isn't he? Yeah, on his on his neck and things like that. Yeah. But they were basically. All Andrews' reforms, what he did, he he got New Labour, he got all their education advisors, David Reynolds, Michael Barber, who were deeply influenced by PISA, and he got these people on board. He's like, help us change um, the Welsh education system. And education 
education list and advisors that weren't on board with Leighton Andrews' journey were basically fired. He was like, you're out, like the beer baron. Yeah. Um, so basically, for Leighton Andrews, performance, you know, which he defined as literacy and numeracy scores to get up to PISA, was the absolute priority. So all other issues were secondary. And importantly now, two years into his tenure... It's like a really kind of... Um Badly budgeted Scarface, isn't it? Someone's just <laughs> corrupt, like you know, just driven to a. But know. with but with education scores. And yeah, so just like surrounded. Okay. Yeah, with loads of just like you know, sats tests instead of. Mm, <laughs> He's got his head in the yeah. head in pizza books. Yeah. Um, all high, right. So high on his own supply. <laughs> so two years into his tenure, Labour win the majority in the 2011 Welsh Assembly election. So this is significant because it means that Leighton Andrews no longer has to worry about Plaid Cymru driving his policies to the left. So basically, Plaid were really opposed to things like league tables and mm. school choice and things like that. So shortly after Labour started to govern alone, Leighton Andrews reintroduced league tables. So these were scrapped under Jane Davidson. He reintroduced them, but he called it banding. So apparently that's not a league table because it's called something else. Yeah. Um, literacy and numeracy tests were reintroduced. So, you know, again, Davidson's got rid of these SATs um, and Andrews brings them back in. Again, the explicit aim of driving up PISA scores. PISA as well, we, we um, should mention, I think you kind of mentioned the article, is it's not really, like, you know, a competition between the nations. It's literally just to kind of see where each nation is or how you're doing. Mm. You know, it's not like... But it has a, but it has competitive. It's about the impact. It, it's the effects it has, which are quite pernicious. Yeah, which is what we'll see. Ah. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. So what's interesting, by the way, if you ever read Leighton Andrews' book, if like me, I'm sure you all will. But how many have you got? You got a few copies, haven't you? Two. Yeah. It's all signed. But what makes Wales interesting and sort of distinct from other modernizers around the globe is that Leighton Andrews is basically deploys all this like progressive rhetoric to justify his reforms so he keeps talking about like the miners next step noah ablett and all these things he's like anarchy you know these these radical syndicalists he's like justifying school league tables by saying um you know working fascism basically saying like working class parents aren't getting the choice they need they're not being told about their school's performance and it's these like sort of lazy middle class teachers so he's using this weird Communitarian rhetoric to justify quite orthodox mm. new Labour reforms. Anyway, I mean, but and that's I think, standard of the Welsh Labour Party, though, isn't it? Yeah, they can just use any historical event to justify their. Yeah, remember the miners' strike? Well, that's why we shouldn't have unions. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely. Do you remember? The, um, so the Owen Smith. Remember the interview with Owen Smith? They were like, "What do you think of the war in Iraq?" And he was like, "Well, you know, Welsh miners fought in the Spanish Civil War against fascism, so I think we should bomb Iraq." Yeah. Um, but they've got this massive reservoir of these sort of things they can draw, and that's what Andrews is exactly the same. So basically, Andrews had all these fanboys in the Welsh media that were saying that basically backed all these reforms, and they claimed that Ruth Davidson had removed key accountability mechanisms, had given complacent teachers too much autonomy. Oh, terrible giving teachers autonomy. No. Um, so basically, what this is is a counter revolution, but it was billed as the most radical, ambitious reform programs that Welsh education has ever seen. So they're just absolutely going crazy for his reforms. And so he was surrounded by, as I said, all these special advisors, like these Blairites. And again, they became obsessed with the idea that teaching can fix all of Wales's problems. You know, this idea that... Um, so he, this was, like, crystallised in the school improvement programme. Yeah, if uh, your kids' grades get better, suddenly, you know, there's going to be more work around. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but it, and it's in the idea that 
society doesn't matter. That's a lot of pressure on the kids, isn't it? I mean, not like, you know, what you do now is can have an effect on your future and the rest of your life. What you do now means whether we get out of debt. Yeah. Yeah. So grandma might die unless, (laughs) uh, you know, unless you crack this GCSE, son. Yeah. So basically he focused on improving and reforming teachers. Remember that thing I said about accountability, this matter of accountability? Mm-hmm. He basically focused on raising standards by setting more targets. So he basically said that the old school inspection system was too soft, so he made that stricter. So basically these reforms, they, they piled pressure on teachers who basically began to suffer from initiative fatigue because he kept bringing out these new reforms and then... Because changed... the International Brigade would have wanted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he kept changing them before they had a chance to embed. So obviously with any reform, you need to give it years and years and years to take time. And then it's like, oh, oh, scrap that, add a new one. Um, so teachers unions argued that he was increasing the workload. There was too much pressure, too much scrutiny. And it was, um, you know, it was crushing teachers' morale and it was breaking, te- it was pushing teachers to breaking point. Um, so basically teachers said that they felt stigmatized by the league tables. Um, and they said that they, they'd been they weren't doing any community engagement. They weren't doing any extracurricular activities because they were just being whipped to like focus on the test and getting children to hit these new PISA standards. Basically, yeah, and like we were just saying, you know, you you can't teach your way out of poverty, can you? It's no, not... that's what that's the whole point. Like, yeah, it's just so. And you know, I mean, like Wales, yeah, is a lumpen region, and it's just locked into poverty. You know, no matter what you do with education, isn't going to transform that, especially like in a few years. At which point you've changed it already because the effects weren't, um, you know, immediate enough for you. And then poverty itself, like you know, is is circular. You know, you you don't see yourself getting out of it anytime soon. So why would you kind of see see school as the kind of exit to it? Yeah, because like teachers can't look. I mean, teacher can't teachers in Wales can't look children in the eye and mm. tell them education will help them when it's abundantly clear to the child. You know, the kids aren't stupid. No. They can see there's no jobs. So if you tell them, oh, you you get an education, you'll get out. No, you won't. What's, what's the, the, the flip side of that? They do get an education. There's no jobs, so they do get out. So you're basically training people, children up to leave, to yeah. you know support another economy, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, and, and, and the jobs that are local, that their families have got or they can see and aspire to, they know that those those jobs don't need GCSEs because it's mainly unskilled work. Yeah. So, Basically, I mean, I'm not saying that schools can't make a difference to people's lives. Everyone knows they can. We've all had good teachers. Yeah, remember. we've all had our Robin Williams teachers, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, exactly. We've my all case, been Ethan Hawke. Yeah. my case, it was my mum, best teacher ever. Yeah, my uh, case, it was Robin Williams. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know... told me to believe in myself, and I kind of transcended... Good old Robin. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, schools can make a difference, you know, they, they can have a positive difference, but you can't have an education policy which focuses entirely on schools and teachers, you know, because, I mean... Most of the factors which impact a child's life are outside the influence of the school. Of the school, you know, particularly in Wales, you know, where you know where adult literacy and numeracy are so poor. I mean, you know, education needs to be focused on the family and the community having an impact. You know, and and these the communities need to be lifted out of poverty to have for education to have. An, for it, let's give an example, right? If a child in Wales comes into school age five with no speech and not toilet trained, yeah. that child is not going to be able to get up to a certain threshold by the time they're 15 because they're so far behind. Yeah. That's not to say that schools can't have a positive impact. No. It's just not going to have the very narrow impact of getting an A to C. You know, but 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 all the great things teachers could develop, like his confidence. Yeah. Or find like something that potentially you could do. But according to, you know, Leighton Andrews, those things are relevant because mm-hmm. it's not 
hitting a certain particular threshold. So, yeah, he ignored all this. I mean, so all the evidence, I should say, academic evidence, say that school actually can't make that much of a difference. The main thing is a community and society. You know? So, as you said... <laughs> it's, it's a good place to kind of point at um, like the source of society's ills, isn't it? And then you get how, you know, um, politicians saying that you know, teachers should be responsible for the children outside the school. Exactly. And it's just like, what... what type of like transcending like institute do you think schools are kids are only in schools what what's five times seven three five yeah so they're well, all right so they're only in but but you know but they're not in school for the majority of their lives no the school you know they're only in school for a small amount of that time but anyway Leighton Adams ignored this and he basically as you said he, he chose instead to focus all his attention on teachers saying like you you were the ones that can solve this, and as if the like jobs aren't hard enough already, pretty much. And then yeah. what do you get then? You get people who just don't want to become teachers. Yeah, of course. So you get like the Why standard of schooling comes down. Like yeah. so, you, you have want? like more successful. Um, so there's no, Norway's seen as quite a successful, well, the Scandinavian countries seen yeah. as very successful countries um, for education. Yeah, and I think I think it was Norway originally. Norway had very poor, um, you know results in education so they kind of took it apart and they started again and they started treating every subject like it mattered so no, you'd have equal time doing English and maths as you would music and dance mm. so you kind of cultivate uh, a child to be more well-rounded and then can kind of easier um, it's easier for them to follow a path that they would like so then as well um, you need at least a master's to teach and because you know there's that old kind of cliched saying those who can't teach but in Norway or Scandinavian countries it's seen as no, like no, a they top say, profession no, no they say those who can teach those who can't teach PE yeah that's right yeah. that's not this false by the way but yeah. that's, not the, that's what they say but. <laughs> but yeah so then you have like um, you know what paying what, you, you, are you saying to me that paying teachers a lot you know a decent wage and respecting them actually helps with their morale and helps with teaching that seems ridiculous. not only that there's a <laughs> This is the only trickle down effect that perhaps we'll support is that you know the people who go in to want to be teachers, yeah, and then maybe maybe just maybe they'll have a positive impact on on the children who yeah. in turn may if if the teachers not there like chain smoking because yeah. they're suicidal because they've been pushed so much yeah or just have no interest in the subject because you like teaching like yeah, but if it, because no because if it, if you're a teacher think of the effects of league tables on a teacher and if you're told right I have to get X amount of this class on part to pass you know to get A to C what are you going to do you're going to focus on the kids on the threshold yeah and you're going to ignore yeah the exactly. kids who aren't capable of hitting that it's like well you guys play with this you know not play with yourselves but doodle in the corner and we're just going to take these kids who've got a chance to get a C and I'll focus on that so yeah so basically um, and also there's like sorry to no, that's try, right, but like you know it's easy to internalise that I got put in for like a lower of course it is uh, test um like where the only the highest mark you could get yeah. was a C. I think it was just physics. So during it, you were made to sit at the front of you know, see so singled out. And then I was like, why do I want to do this? So I just drew all over my physics paper for the, my GCSE. I was like, well, why bother? Exactly. Yeah, it's just. It's so just, the ha- but what you're saying there, I mean, these things. I mean, the, the way that as you structure education that way, and as you focus on hitting these thresholds, as you focus, you, you focus on increased pressure and accountability. That ruins that gradually will ruin the child's experience of school. Yeah. Fact, because I mean they're not being taught to value the subject or an in-depth understanding of the subject. They're just being taught right. Let's just pass this exam. Yeah, pass tra- this exam. Let's get up. We need we need to. Our school needs to move from this uh, 
up the league tables. We need to hit this certain threshold. Well, you're treating like education as just a glorified memory game. Just yeah, remember right. all this and then yeah. do your test, then it's done. Yeah, so teaching to the test was a massive thing. So that's what teachers used to complain about. But basically, Leighton Andrews ignored all this evidence. Um, well, he didn't ignore evidence. He basically exclusively listened to Tony Blair's advisors, like uh, David Reynolds, who said things like schools should be... like He basically said that the community doesn't matter. You could have a terrible environment, but a good school will compensate for it, which, again, bucks all the other available evidence in, in sort of yeah, sociology of education. But anyway, so... Yeah, so funny enough, but then, unsurprisingly, Leighton Andrews' reforms and the pressure they placed on teachers, they failed to raise standards. That's surprising. I know. And then when the PEAS results 2012 were released in 2013, it emerged that, you know, Welsh scores in maths and science had gotten worse. Um, And Leighton Andrews, of course, had banked on securing huge political capital from being able to improve education because he thought... I think he sees himself as a great reformer, as a strong man. He's quite a confrontational guy. He's actually a very intelligent bloke. Um, but oh, he, to but an he, extent. But he said, you know, he, he basically banked on being able to say, I'm the man that has fixed Welsh education. And with each passing year, it became abundantly clear that he wasn't going to get some miraculous breakthrough because there's no quick fix. He sort of became more belligerent and confrontational, picking fights with teachers' unions, with teachers, seemingly like sort of bitter. That's some playground shit right there, isn't it? Yeah, he's just bitter. Just calling them out. He seemed angry that teachers were sort of letting his like pet project down. Um, and you know, yeah, and in many ways, I think he started to look for scapegoats. Um, and in the end, his fall from grace was quite funny because it could only perhaps happen in Wales that he he had to resign after he was caught protesting against his own policies. So one of his policies was like school small schools and small communities it costs a lot of money to keep them open because they didn't have enough pupils mm. so like staffing costs and things like that so he basically said that you know all these schools should close but then he was caught when it happened in his community in the local community school was to close went after his kids he, well he well he went out and protested and people were actually said well um he protested against his own policy and what was funny and it's about the problem with the media in wales i remember reading a report on it quite recently and one of the BBC reporters said, he said, what's interesting about this is that no one thinks it's a big story. Yeah. The, like, people had to go looking. Like, there wasn't an outcry. The BBC had to make it into a story that the education minister was protesting against his own policies. Um, so anyway, he had to resign. And then all these people were mourning him, saying, you know, that, oh, he's the great reformer. There's the man that wasn't afraid to stand <coughs> up to Interestingly enough, I was trying to get... lazy teachers, things like that. Yeah, I was trying to get a bit of background for this episode. So I was kind of thumbing through this book by Verso called Schools and it um, mainly deals with the English education system so I was like I don't really want to read all this so I just jumped to the back where I just mentioned Wales and as you just said you know really praises Leighton Andrews as some great reformer yeah because he's the guy that adopted like this you know Wales diverged from this like neoliberal orthodoxy Mm. after the evolution he's the man that brought it back closer to in line with England so Leighton Andrews isn't there anymore um He's gone on position at Cardiff University. But, you know, the paradigm has been shifted. So Wales has begun its sort of journey towards, basically, in a way, the international average, like this neoliberal system of school league tables, things like this. Um, and so, basically, like all these senior politicians now, they say, I read, not, I read a bit, and they say, as reformers, we are now pushing at open doors, implying that Leighton Andrews, like, kicked them all down, basically broke the will of teachers. So they can introduce all these reforms now, basically. Mm. Um, so after Andrews, you've got Hugh Lewis, who was another moderniser. Um, who Hugh pledged, Lewis in the news. Yeah, so he pledged to continue Leighton Andrews' reforms. 
you know, he basically unsubtly started criticising Jane Davidson, said she took her eye off the ball. There's all these reports were leaked, citing problems in the Jane Davidson and Jane Hutt. Um, they said there was a lack of standards. Um, so basically, Hugh Lewis seemed generally content to sort of let Leighton Andrews' reforms in bed. Um, he wasn't going to tear it up and start again. Um, but then, so people thought, like, because, like, you know, Hugh Lewis used to be a teacher, and I know people in the profession said they were, they thought, well, maybe Hugh Lewis is going to scrap league tables mm. that Leighton Andrews reintroduced. But no, he said, I'm, he just renamed them as colour coding. And again, like, he was like, this aren't, these, these aren't league tables. Do you want to what that's it's like? It's not league tables. Borrowing someone's homework and changing it a bit and then handing it in yourself. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, how can you, it's quite clearly league tables, but he's like, no, it's not. It's just colour coding. It's got a different name. How can yeah. it be the same thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, he dropped, you know, did things like dropped hardship funds for pure students, poor students in higher education, things like this. So coming up to the present day, finally, yeah. sigh of relief. Right, yeah. Hugh Lewis stood down in 2016. He's replaced by Kirsty Williams, Liberal Democrat, who was offered the position as a way of keeping Carwin Jones as first minister following that stalemate where Carwin Jones apparently looked like he was crying. Anyway, so Kirsty Williams, again, as we said earlier, has claimed that the solution to Wales education woes lies in improving teaching and in developing educational leadership. So basically following the paradigm Delaine Andrews has set out. Um, so I mean, she says that the key to improving Welsh education is we need enthused, valued and skilled teachers. Well, I thought, well, why not pay them more? Yeah. Not out of the question. Um, league tables are going to be retained. Really? Testing is going to be retained. Um, financial assistance for Welsh universities is going to be scrapped. Oh. Um, so what's all this? I mean, again, I'll finish on a rhetorical well. So all these changes to Welsh education in the last... You know, decade or so, they demonstrate how hard it is for countries to sort of sustain progressive initiatives and like swim against the global mm. tide of transformation education. So, you know, devolution gave us in Wales a chance to to do things differently, first from New Labour and then from the Tory government in Westminster. And in the earliest devolution, there was a clear attempt to chart a distinct course which avoided the neoliberal reform reforms initiated by Tony Blair's government in England. Yet the path less travelled was gradually but inexorably abandoned for not conforming with this hegemonic image of what education should be like. So if we think back now, people talk about the Jane Davidson tenure, they think about it, it's like, whoa, what a hippie, like did away with league tables, <laughs> did away with sats. But they what was she doing, But man? they think about it, it's, it's, it's almost obscene to think about you know not being in Pisa, you know what I mean? Um, so Wales has adopted the norms and methods of neoliberalism, more testing, school league tables and increased pressure and accountability on teachers and so basically all the, you know, all the evidence from the teachers unions in Wales show that the reintroduction of league tables have acted as sort of perverse incentives with teachers increasingly focusing on students on the borderline ignoring other students things like that so again I mean and the thing is so Wales has basically converged with England in education mm. but that's been overlooked and that's because Education in England has been run by like Michael Gove, who's like a pantomime villain. So it make you know compared to him, he makes Leighton Andrews seem really progressive. You know what I mean? But the reality is that subtly and ever so, ever so subtly, Wales has been actually moving closer and closer and closer to England in education, whilst sort of retaining this progressive rhetoric that the Welsh Labour government is so good at. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And it's been aided by the fact that the the Welsh media are all on board with this sort of program basically anyway should we wrap up there I think so yeah it's a bit of a long one I'm sorry um, I mean we'll we could talk about PISA all day you know, I should have sort of said I'm, I am an education researcher so this is um, 
banged on a bit, haven't I? I've gone no, no, it's been good. It's been great. So anyway, oh yeah, I should have said as well, I mean, go back to Pisa to finish. I mean, the irony is that you can't win under Pisa, right? So Wales is under huge pressure to move up the rankings, and obviously that's the pressure that basically warped Leighton Andrews' mind, sent him mad. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the top-performing countries like Japan are also under excruciating pressure not to slip down the rankings. So there's all these sociology studies, Japanese education, who are like, they're flying, obviously, as you'd expect. But they're like, you know, if they slip a little bit, whoa, whoa, what's going on? A, cri- a political crisis, right? So by its very nature, PISA basically encourages perpetual competition between countries. So even if, let's think, even if Wales did climb the ladder, yeah, like, and we we hit those targets late Andrews achieved set for himself, we'd still be under enormous pressure to maintain or improve that position. So, and what's happened now, like, we've, I mean, we won't talk about the Donaldson review, but we've got, the Donaldson review of Welsh education was, is kind of this thing that was commissioned, and it, it contains a lot of progressive ideas. Um, so it says it's going to develop young people as ambitious, capable learners, enterprising contri- contributors, ready to play a full part in society. It says it's going to be ethical, informed citizens of Wales and the world, healthy, confident individuals. And so the, the Donaldson Review is accompanied by a commitment to focus on arts and humanities, you know, things like that. So it's like this progressive rhetoric, right? But on the other hand, as I said, Wales also wants to go up the PISA rankings and schools want to move up details. So there's a tension between doing both, you know, because as we've seen, subjects like arts and humanities gradually fall by the yeah, wayside because they, the sides, yeah. yeah so it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen because i think there's a tension in the welsh education system between the recommendation of the donaldson review and how the reality of how the welsh education system is structured because of the pressure that has been placed on it essentially by PISA. anyway any shout outs yeah, um, I got a few shout outs. Uh, I got a shout out to Kurt Russell, the greatest actor of all time. Kurt okay, Boy. Yeah, um, so um, for regular listeners, you'll know that we've this, um, we started a Patreon. We did, give, so, us, money. give us some money. Yeah, some people have. So shout outs to, I think it's Leah Fee, Reese Mills, um, Brydeny Bynan. I'm sorry if I butchered your name then, but thank you. Kieran Smith, Christian Main, Owen Elit. A leader. Oh, scampy boy. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, oh man. Thanks. Uh, Nick Nick Davis. Nick Davis, sorry. And uh, Alex Winkler. So, oh, thank Winks. you so much. Winks. Oh, you know him, dude. Yeah. Right. He's like... Yeah. Sorry if I uh, messed up the execution of the shout out. But no, that's great. Yeah, if you want if you want to be shout out at the end, give some cash. And so we should say that um, also, earlier today, and actually while we were recording this, we were being filmed for... Uh, documentary no big deal yeah no big deal but it was by HBO and Vice so yeah. you know so we're going to be The Wire's coming back and we're going to be in it yeah I'm Mar- I'm Marlo and yeah. you're Omar yeah and then if that, and then we're going to have cameos in the new True Detective yeah I didn't like season 2 of True Detective no I'm, not seen I've one. signed up to be uh, Rustin Rustin Cole's lovable sidekick good man I think you make a great uh, detective yeah a true, a true detective the truest of detectives um, um, shout outs for you uh, what else um, shout outs to family and Graham obviously finally moved out so had an amazing two years with you man um, even though we lost I've been giving shout outs to my landlady of last like I don't Premature know why I did that outs. and then she kept like 450 quid of the bond so I'm not gonna it's a family show so I swear but I'm not particularly happy with that no, um, and if you want to understand the injustice of the renting system then listen to one of our podcasts on it um, shout out to Aditya as well for hooking us up with HBO Aditya Chakrabarti big fan of, uh, big friend of the show the absolute boy 
the yeah. absolute boy track about it. So thanks so much, Aditya, for hooking us up um, with our newfound fame. Um, so yeah, um, stay tuned. We're going to be doing stuff on the general election, aren't we? Um, yeah, hoping to get some pretty big guests in. Pretty big, big hitters. Yeah, watch big this hit. space. Stay tuned. Yeah, thanks so much. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. How is my son supposed to pass his classes if you keep dragging him off for a high-concept sci-fi rigmarole? Listen, Jerry, I don't want to overstep my bounds or anything. It's your house. It's your world. You're a real Julius Caesar. But I'll tell you, tell you how, how I feel about school, Jerry. It's a waste of time. Bunch of people running around, bumping into each other. Got guy up front says two plus two. People in the back say four. Then the, then the bell rings. They give you a carton of milk and a piece of paper that says you can go take a dump or something. I mean, it's not a place for smart people, Jerry. I know that's not a popular opinion. That's my two cents on the issue.